Mean Old Lion Media presents Black Arm of the Law. Welcome to Black Arm of the Law podcast, where each week we'll examine the most pressing issues in the criminal legal system. I am your host, Dr. Rochelle Brackney, also known as Chief B. As we settle into today's show, don't forget to subscribe, follow, rate, and comment on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, Amazon Music, Apple, or TuneIn. So let's jump into it. My guest today is Chief, I'm going to say Chief Chief, Jason Armstrong, because you have been everywhere that makes a difference in your career. Um, you know, for someone who's been in this field for a long time, I'm fangirling here about your style, the way you go about your work. Chief, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about uh, Chief Armstrong. We now know that you are currently the chief in Apex, North Carolina. Apex is the top, right? So we at the top of the career when you came to Apex. Tell, talk to the, the, the audience a little bit about uh, your career and how you found yourself back home in North Carolina. Yes, uh, Michelle, thanks. Thanks for that. So uh, I'll start uh, in college. Uh, I attended North Carolina Central University here in, in Durham, North Carolina. And while I was at Central, um, my senior year, I learned about a program that the Department of Justice um, had recently started. And so we're talking 22 years ago, over 22 years ago. And that program, they were targeting college graduates um, to come into law enforcement. So 20 plus years ago, that wasn't the natural route that somebody would take. You didn't see a lot of people that would come out of high school, go to college for four years, get a degree, and then become a police officer. And, and you know, from the military to law enforcement was more of a natural progression. And so with this program, you know, one thing that they were looking at back then was the, the challenges that a lot of police departments had with their relationships with minority communities or low-income communities. And so what they tried to do to tackle that problem was to incentivize college educated individuals to join the law enforcement profession. And so I got into that program and, and that program took me to Georgia or I decided to, to do the program in Georgia. So as soon as I graduated from college, I moved down to Georgia and started um, the, the academy that the Department of Justice had put together specifically for this program. And in doing that, and I finished that program, and I went to work for a city called Forest Park, Georgia, which is in Metro Atlanta. So we, we bordered uh, Atlanta. And, and that's just really, really where I learned to be a police officer. And I learned just some of the nuances and the challenges of community and, and their relationship with law enforcement. Uh, and one thing that really, really got my attention um, was the, the Mike Brown incident in Ferguson in 2014. So in 2014, um, I by that time, let's see, I had been in the profession for 13 years or so, and um, I, I just I remember I remember watching everything unfold, and I remember watching all of the news story and all the coverage of everything that was happening up there, and and I, I followed that incident not just for the news coverage, but months and months later when the report came out from the Department of Justice about their investigation and the findings um, that, um, you know, that they had from their investigation. And as I was reading through that report, I saw a lot of similarities for how the community members were talking about the Ferguson Police Department and how I knew my community members were talking about the Forest Park Police Department. 
And and that that really that really got my attention to where I knew we needed to do some things differently. And I knew I needed to do some things differently with how we were working with the community, how we were trying to connect with the community to build better relationships. Because the last thing that I would want to happen in my community is for us to have an incident like that and for us to see that type of response from the community, that type of, you know, unrest and destruction and violence and everything. Um, and, and so that really just, you know, lit a fire under me, you know, I was the only minority uh, in our command staff at the time. Um, I was the first minority, oh, I was the first black person. We've had other minorities, but I was the first black person that would be a part of our command staff. And so, you know, I didn't feel as though anybody else was, um, you know, was really equipped to go out in the community where, you know, I knew where some of our challenges were. Um, and, and I felt that was most suited to, to go out there and try to lead that work and lead that effort. Um, and just in the work that I did in that community, uh, led me to, uh, in 2019 being appointed the police chief in Ferguson, Missouri. And we talk about, you know, full circle moments, you know, that was, that was the incident that really led to, to my passion, um, to, to do this work. And then I had an opportunity to go there as the chief, uh, in, in 2019. I'm going to stop you right here. Let me tell you why I'm going to stop you right there. Because it's a jump from, you know, when you're in Forest Park, right? And, you know, currently the chief there is is Black, right? We got a, a Black male chief, I think, in Forest Park, if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. He's also a, a noble member. Um, for y'all know, I shout out the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives every time I'm on my podcast. But the reason I want to stop you is because when you first are brought into policing, right? You're first brought into policing. You're brought into policing um, because of all the things that were going on across the nation, right? Where black community, poor communities, those communities who have been disenfranchised, those communities who have been marginalized by the criminal legal system said, hey, we can't do this the way we've been doing it. So we've got to try something different. So we, we try and approach it through a DOJ, right, who is the primary law enforcement, head law enforcement agency across the nation, right? So they're plucking out a young black male out of North Carolina, right, out of Durham, the heart of the South, to now say, I want to welcome you into a profession that not only typically doesn't welcome you in as a black male, but um, will oftentimes um, push you away um, from being part of the the solution to make you part of the problem, right? You find yourself on the other side of the policing narrative. When you're in Georgia and you're barely 21 years old, correct? If I'm correct, you mm-hmm. you started like me. I just turned 21 years old when I started. Let's start there because that's a big jump from this 21-year-old to finding themselves to leading Ferguson, Missouri with some of the spotlight I mean, Ferguson was a flashpoint, just like um, Memphis is a fa- flashpoint, just like, you know, Minneapolis. They're flashpoints in policing. Policing. Talk to me about when you're sitting in Forest Park and you're seeing what's going on in Ferguson, Missouri, and how that resonated from your experiences um, or from what you have been told was going to happen to you as a police officer. Um, do you know what I mean? Like, that's very different. What we're told is going to happen to us and what we're seeing is going on. And there's a disconnect between those things that we're living every day and what we're seeing every day and what we were sold as a bill of goods sometimes when we entered the profession. Where's that? Where was that disconnect or where was that resonance for you? So for me, I, I think it was a lot of 
you know, coming into the profession, you don't know what this profession is until you're in it and you're you're exposed to it. And so I think a lot of us, especially coming in so young, you know, we're naive to the notion that, okay, I can come in here and I can impact all of this change or I can make all of these great things happen. And then you get in here and you you quickly learn that that is not how this system is set up and that's not how it, it is designed. And you have to assimilate to what is going on in the organization or the individuals that you you work with on a daily basis or who, you know, just your first line supervisor may be, um, you know, inside the organization. And so you learn very quickly that that everybody is is not. I don't want to say not necessarily on the same page, but just people are coming from very different places and people are are moved by different things. They're impacted differently by different things. And so as a young person or in a young officer coming into this profession, like your voice matters the least and your thoughts on things matter the least. And and that is that is a tough place to find yourself in. Cause like you talked about, you know, like what are you sold? You know, I mean, you're sold, uh, at least, you know, I was that, hey, like you're, you are the future. Right. And you are the ones that are going to come in and, and going to change the profession and have this great impact. And then you get in there and then you just run into roadblocks constantly, dead ends constantly when you, you try to bring ideas or just even suggest, you know, hey, let's do something this way or let's try this or to try that. And you're often hit with, no, we can't do it that way because, well, why not? Well, because we've always done it this way and this is the way that it has to be. Um, and, and that, you know, that's hard for a young person or a young officer coming into a profession to learn how to navigate and adjust to that to get to the place where you can have the impact that you want to have. Yeah. You know, um, I say all the time. So they, they sold me this fraternity, right? This fraternal order of police, right? They sold me this brotherhood. Um, they sold you on um, there. There's no one who's going to protect you and look out for you. Um, the way this fraternity real, right? You know, I never pledged. Um, I know you did though, right? No, no, I didn't. You didn't you, wait a minute, wait. Not one of the divine nine. Uh oh. Nope. But okay, so good. So we, we have this in comedy. So when you think of fraternity, or you think of even you know pledging in the the divine nine and and support, you think of a brotherhood or an extended family that you didn't have, right? I'm much like yourself. Thought I was getting that, and that my voice would matter. But it felt very much like I'm a middle child. I'm one of six. Like there was noise as my older siblings and there's noise as my younger. And in the middle, I kind of like lost voice. And as a new officer, it feels like you lose your voice um, and no one's really interested in your ideas because this system is going to continue moving regardless of all the programs that that are in place, right? To either recruit, dare I say things like diversity, equity, inclusion, dare I say things like affirmative action. But there's something that happens. And you said it what was interesting is you have to find a way to assimilate into the profession. And I'm going to say in order for you to be successful, did you find yourself, you know, you hear things like code switching, uh, double consciousness, that when you were at work, you know, you had to code switch when you were there versus when you went home um, and versus when you went into the community in order for your voice to be heard. Because you rose in pretty high up in the ranks. I mean, you were the chief of Ferguson, Missouri after Michael Brown. Somehow you had to find a way for your voice to be heard. How did that occur? So I, I definitely did not code switch. Um, a big thing for me and, and even what I do to this day is Jason Armstrong is Jason Armstrong. 
uh, and and you know I, I often uh, would say use the Ric Flair line: "If you don't like it, then learn to love it because you got to deal with." It. Uh, and 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 so for for me, yeah, coming up in the organization that I came up in, it was it it, it really really helped me because I was exposed to a lot of things that I didn't know about. You know, my organization, you know, was predominantly white officers. Um, and so we we had a, a small amount of minority officers, but there was a lot of education that took place in that space going both ways to where, you know, I would say something and they wouldn't know what I was talking about, but I had an opportunity to explain to them, you know, what this meant or what the slang meant, you know, in the black community, but vice versa. And so, you know, learning how to, you know, navigate in that space is just learning, you know, not only what can I help others learn and, and grow to, but how am I learning and growing in the same space? Too often we come from the lens and we're only thinking about how we are impacted in such a way or what is the impact on us where we need to be thinking, man, what is the impact on both of us? And and if I want somebody to be more welcoming and accepting of me, then maybe I have to do some soul searching to make sure that I'm being just as welcome and accepting of them and the uniqueness about them and what makes them different. And so, you know, co- growing up in Forest Park or coming up in Forest Park, I just really got to a place where after I had been there for a while and I had, you know, built relationships and you talk about, you know, that brotherhood, that sisterhood, where, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if if the worst thing is happening in that community, we know we all gonna ride together on that. We're always going to do that. And that was the foundation of our relationship. And once we had that, you know, established, then it's, like how further can we go in helping one another learn things? I remember the first time that I heard somebody use the term uh, backhoe and my mind is blown. I'm like, what is that? But then they explained that the piece of equipment that's on the back of that trailer. That, and, and so I had never heard of that before and I had no clue what that was. Right. And that's the education piece. And so, so like we were, we were able and Rochelle, that that's the beauty of diversity to me. Is, is it's not just what we look like, but it's what our experiences are and just the uniqueness that we bring to the equation where like we learn different things. And so if I'm in one environment, somebody uses that term, it's going to be taken a completely different way versus now nah, they're talking about, man, we, we having a problem with people stealing backhoes in the community and, and just, you know, th- things like that um, was, was a, a blessing for me. In, in coming up in that environment where I was able to learn and I was able to help individuals learn as well. So, you know, it's something really um, interesting. So, you know, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. In 1997, um, we designed a cultural competency professionalism program for the city of Pittsburgh, right? And one of the, I had two interesting sections. Beyond the sections, I'm talking about those people who are, you know, indigenous or those, you know, individuals who identify as black or brown. I had two sections about police culture which is a very unique and interesting culture, right, that most people don't know about. But I also said we make assumptions that people understand or have been exposed to majority culture, right? We make assumptions because that the United States of America is majority white or European that people have interacted and have some understanding of what that culture is and what that culture looks like. And somebody, you know, like myself, who is... uh, mixed in terms of my ethnicity, but identify as black. I remember one of the the interesting um, learning lessons about my dad's side of the family, who is white, right? They're the Italian and German side of the family. I remember the first time that my mother cooked neck bones for my dad. Now, you imagine this man came from this Italian-German family. She's black. 
you know, she's Native American, 23 and me, and we know you uh, you also identify um, as indigenous. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that experience too. But the first time my mother cooked neck balloons, you know, if you go up in black culture and community, you know, when they cook it, they just taking the neck bone, there's some hot sauce and they're just sucking it off the bone. My father pulled out a knife and fork. It was the funniest thing that had ever happened in our household. So being exposed to the fact that he had never grown up around that we make assumptions about majority culture and policing majority culture tends still to be about 80 to 85% white male. So we make assumptions that we know about their culture, but we also make assumptions that they understand and know about ours. And we're sometimes, I mean, tired of exhausted of the labor we have to do to find out about each other. But you said there was a valuable lesson in understanding that culture, even using a term like backhoe. I'm like you, like, you know, I grew up in the city, but I did, it was exposed to um, rural living. So, but if someone had talked about like, yo, that, that's the backhoe, we're like, mm, that, yeah. And especially if they were talking about your mama, that would have been some problems in the city. But they're talking about John Deere. <laughs> they talking John Deere. So you find yourself moving up and you find yourself stirred by some of the social justice issues that are occurring in the world that you can see in policing. And you're also in that space, right? You're a relatively young person coming up into this field and you're moving through the ranks quickly. Um, most people never see the rank of chief ever. You've seen it twice at least and probably we'll see it again. Um, Apex, I'm not trying to get rid of y'all teeth. I mean, I fangirl because he is y'all social media. You want to talk about an acolyte, man. This dude is on it for Apex. But here's why I want to understand. When you're seeing what's going on in policing and when you see what happened after Michael Brown, why Ferguson? Why did you go after that position? How did you find yourself there? And who would want that kind of scrutiny? Um, after a seminal event that rocked the world, that led to 21st century policing, an entire new way in which we look at it, you took on that challenge. So I, I've, I've been a police chief three times. Uh-oh. So the first time was in Forest Park. Uh, I actually served a stint as the interim chief there. Okay. And uh, so serving that stint as interim chief uh, was my first exposure to politics. And it was not it was not a pleasant experience, uh, to say the least. Um, it was it was a horrible experience. And the experience was so bad that I knew it was time for me to leave Forest Park. That's how bad of an experience it was. And I, I remember, you know, me and my wife, we we weren't looking to leave Atlanta. We weren't interested in leaving Atlanta. And but at the time, you know, I needed to leave. But most uh, most agencies, the only position that they hire from the outside is the chief position. That's right. You know, you may you may see a deputy chief pop up here and there. A lot of times people go internal for those positions. And so it wasn't that I was, you know, just just hell bent on being a chief at that time. It really was. This is you know, these are the opportunities that are out there. And and I need an opportunity because I really need to, to leave the environment that that I was in. So that was the that was the motivation. And and I talked with my wife and my wife had, you know, given me the OK to look at positions, you know, nationwide. 
with the understanding that, you know, if we decided to do anything, it was always going to be a family decision and, and not me just pursuing my personal professional uh, dreams and goals. And, and I tell the story when I saw the Ferguson job poster, the only reason I applied for this job was because it was an easy apply. And so easy applied, meaning the only thing that they were asking for at that stage to apply was your resume and a cover letter. Mm. And I had all of that stuff ready to go. And so it was, why not? I never thought in a million years they would call me. I never thought they would call me. Uh, and so, so I honestly, truth, truthfully speaking, like when I, when I applied for it, like it really was almost like a joke because this is Ferguson. When you said easy apply, I didn't think you were talking about like easy credit, you know, like one, one click. I'm thinking, you're thinking, okay, with all of the baggage that's Ferguson, who's jumping into that fire, right? Who's leaving the fire frying pan to jump into that fire is where my mind went. But you're like, nah, let me help you with this. This was a one-click, one-stop shop. Give me your resume. Give me your cover letter. And it wasn't all the other craziness. For those of you who have never gone through a chief's process, it is the worst kind of employment hazing that I have ever been through. I have interviewed for certain positions. 20 interviews later, I'm still interviewing. And to the point where I'm tapping out saying, if you can't figure it out after 20 interviews, it's time for me to roll. Um, but yeah, th that's a e yeah, that's an easy apply. <laughs> and so, so that that was all I had to send in. And so, you know, I send it in, never thinking that they would seriously look at my stuff because this is Ferguson. You know, I'm sure nobody in 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 Ferguson or Missouri has ever heard of Forest Park, Georgia. So I, I didn't think anything of it uh, until I got the phone call, and and I got the phone call, and they wanted me to come up to interview for it. So that's when that's when it got serious. Uh, and, and that's when, you know, I really started, but, e but even then I doubted myself and I was like, all right, I'm sure, you know, they're going to have some really, really good candidates that come from big departments, you know, LA, New York, Chicago, something like that. They're going to be, you know, um, better candidates than me, or they have a lot more that they can put on the table. You know, yes, I, I had, you know, a, a short stint of being a chief and sitting in the chief seat, but. Still, this is Ferguson and they're, you know, they, they wouldn't seriously consider me. Uh, but it wasn't until I got up there for the interviews and I happened to get there on the day that they had a council meeting. And I went to the council meeting, sat in the back and just got to observe things. And and coming out of that council meeting and just 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 hearing people talk uh, about things and they were talking about the cheap process and everything. When I walked out of there, I had a totally different mindset uh, about what I was about to do up there. And I remember I called my wife and I told my wife that she needs to start thinking about, you know, would she seriously consider living in St. Louis? Because and after that, it just clicked for me and I had the ultimate confidence that I was I was going to get the job. Yeah. And so, you know what, um, Ray, I have my nerve, right? Who goes to Charlottesville, Virginia after their yeah, like the right rally to say, yeah, I want to be chief there after all the, the, the scrutiny. But here's the thing, you would then have a um, grounds eye view at, you've read the reports, I've read the reports that have come out of Memphis, um, I read the reports that came out of Minneapolis that said the conditions were right, like everything about it led up to these events. Ferguson was having financial issues, poor relationships with the community, and so 
the events that had occurred in Ferguson caught the attention of the president of the United States and moved him to the point of putting together a commission, a task force, right, to address 21st century policing. And they're looking at you, right? They're looking at your department to be able to do that, to do that kind of work, right? Because that's the reason they put it together, right? How does this happen where somebody dies in the street and lays in the street for hours dead? I mean, it was just a lot of horrific things that had gone on there. How did that, how did that chief experience, as well as literally someone from the highest office in the land looking at your community now, um, affect the way you do your work and do your policing, not only in Ferguson, but I've seen you in Apex, and we're going to talk about the fact that this, you find yourself as an Obama fellow. I'm like, hey, babe, right? Make sure you see him. We'll talk about that too, right? Everyone knows I'm I'm a fan of Obama, um, both of them, the, you know, Michelle as well as her husband. How did that shape your, the way you're, the way you led that agency? But even now, I mean, you've written articles on lessons in leadership um, that have gone through police magazines. You've given presentations at IACP. For people who don't know, that's the International Association Chiefs of Police, um, Noble. Like, you, you're out there spreading the message about how to do this and do it well because you are known. If, if, I, if there's anybody out there that is like a community whistler, you know, they call it the, the horse whisperer. Um, we talk about the community whisperer. You got that on lock um, about how you do this well. So let's talk about how the influences of those specific tenants, those six pillars influenced it, but also how you translated that into authentic community relations where you're building relationships in Apex like I've not seen. I mean, between you and Stella, like y'all two hold it down um, in North Carolina right now. And the key word, the key word that you said, Rochelle, was intentional. Um, and, and what I tell people, like, there is no secret sauce to, to doing this. I've only been been successful or, or good at being Chief Armstrong because Jason Armstrong is, is who is fueling Chief Armstrong. And, and that's just how I try to live my life of being a good person, being a decent person, somebody that my family could be could be proud of. And a, lo- a large part of, of doing this work is just getting in spaces with people and talking to them and hearing what they have to say and, and, and letting that, you know, influence and guide, you know, how you make decisions or how you, how you go about doing the work or how you go about showing up. If that's what, you know, the topic of of discussion is, you know, so people know at the end of the day, you know, this police department, this community, man, they can depend on us to be here for them and to be a partner with them. And that is the thing. That's the big thing that that I preach is this is a a partnership. It is this is not, you know, the police department is separate from the community, and and we are here to just you know occupy this space or or to exert some level of authority over people. That's not what this is, man. This is a partnership. And going to a place like Ferguson, you understand the value of that partnership more than anything else. Because this is what I explain to people. Ferguson community of about 21,000 people when I got there. So the city of Ferguson has about 21,000 people. Police department, our authorized traffic might have been about 46 officers. If 21,000 people decide to turn against and they want to do harm to 46 police officers, they can do a lot of harm to us. And when we think about it from that lens, man, that helps you 
get your mind right about what it takes to make sure that you are a good partner for the community that you are in, because we are always outnumbered. That's we are always outnumbered. So how do we ensure that on our worst day, man, we still have the support of the community that we need and that these individuals, we shouldn't give them a reason to want to come do us harm. And, and, and so, you know, being in Ferguson and knowing how bad things can get. And, you know, I was there when George Floyd was killed and things got extremely bad for us and extremely violent toward us. But I also know that the majority of the people that was doing that were not people from our community and they were not residents of Ferguson. They were people that came in because they wanted to do harm and they wanted to bring chaos, you know, to Ferguson because of Ferguson's history. And so, and, and going there and doing the work is really just about being intentional about being a good partner with the people in the community and finding ways that you all can work together, you know, to see, to see progress and to see things move in a positive direction. And also the community understanding what their responsibility and what their role is in doing that, because it doesn't all fall on us. And I don't have a problem telling the community about that, about ways that they need to show up and about ways that they need to, to bring something to the table to help us all because too often you know, people are just looking at the police to solve all of the problems and we don't have all of the answers. And and we need more people that's doing some of that heavy lifting to give us a chance, to give the community a chance, you know, to be as successful as we can be or to thrive uh, as, as good as we as we want to thrive. You know, and that's a it's a it's a really interesting in, in um, understanding. I mean, it's a very astute understanding, right? When you're when you're 46 officers to 21,000, you are outnumbered, right? And, and understanding that your real power lies in your relationship building. Um, that's the real strength, right, is your relationship building. That's not always been the approach. Like, literally, you know, if we think about, um, there's about 335 million people in the United States. And right now, policing is about 750,000, about 130,000 of them um, tend to be in federal and so that means there's about 600,000 people out on the streets to, con- to, to basically maintain order for 335 million people. The previous approach often was racial terror, right? Force, violence, like they, you control the populations through terror. That's not the approach you, you're using at all. You're saying we do this work through partnerships, through relationships, being intentional about the community's needs, as well as the community's responsibilities to help out with public safety, right? That has definitely not always been everybody's approach, that's for sure. So when you were learning those lessons, there's a really fond picture of, uh, you know, we're both friends with former Commissioner Danielle Outlaw. So not that we're former friends, but, you know, she's in Philadelphia, she left Philadelphia, now doing some things with the New York, New Jersey, court she you you looked to her as a young chief as well what was some advice that you were given about being a young chief about i mean i think you were 39 when you took over ferguson missouri somewhere yeah you were under 40 38 39 years old when you took over ferguson what was some of the best advice you were given by some of those mentors who were intentional in your life um or that you learned from the community um, about doing the work that you're doing. So from, from Danielle, um, yeah, so I was, uh, it was even before I became a chief, I reached out to her because I, I realized that I was young trying to become a chief. And so as I did my research and I was trying to find men who in the country had achieved what I was trying to achieve, 
and I, I stumbled upon Danielle Outlaw, and I, I blindly reached out to her just to see if she'd be open to talk to me, and she was, and and we talked. And the best advice that she gave me was in going through the interview process for a chief job. She says, "Show them who you truly are." She said, "Be your authentic self in that space." And she said, don't put on just to get a chief job because you want to be a chief. Said, because that would be the word that could be one of the worst decisions that you would make. Because if you show them a representative of yourself and not your true self, you're not going to be happy there. Because if they hire you thinking that this is who you are and then you get in there, there's going to be conflict. And and so, you know, so her advice, he was like, you know, one of the things where a lot of people get into trouble is, you know, they are so you know, so hungry and starving to get that chief job and to get that chief title that they go on those interviews and they say anything that they think that the people want to hear. So they pick them for that job. And and so that was the best advice that she gave me is that you will be miserable if you go into a place not being your true authentic self. Um, another person that was that was very impactful for me uh, was Chief uh, Cassandra Deck Brown. I don't know if you know Cassandra. I do uh, know Cassandra Deck yeah, Brown. Uh, yeah, normally in Durham. The former Chief of Raleigh. Um, Raleigh, sorry, before Stella took over. Patterson is there. Yeah, correct. Yep, 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 the Chief before Stella. And and I, I did a program with Chief Deck Brown years ago. And so I was a captain in Forest Park when I did this program, but the program was largely for chiefs and sheriffs, so people much higher than I was. And so, I, you know, I was really looking forward to this opportunity uh, to be around these these leaders, once again, people that are in positions that I'm trying to get to. And going through that program, and I think it was maybe 20 of us or so, uh, so mostly chiefs and sheriffs, uh, but it only took a couple of days for me to see, man, who was who was probably, you know, the best leader and 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 had the most to offer me in that group. And it was Chief Deck Brown. And, and I remember, you know, we, we were, uh, we had to take a lot of bus trips. And so she sat at the front of the bus next to like a historian. So she can learn. She's always in a learning space where me, I'm more the, Hey, I'm headed to the back of the bus and, and I'm gonna cut up back here. Uh, but maybe by the second or third day, man, I'm sitting up in front of the bus behind her so I could bend her ear and just, you know, take in as much as I could take in from her. Um, and, and it was, you know, it was individuals like that, that, you know, saw enough in me uh, that they took the time, you know, to, to pour into me, I will never forget it. And, and I told this story at, at uh, Chief Deck Brown's retirement ceremony. I came to North Carolina from Ferguson. Um, so I could be there to, to, you know, wish her well in, in retirement. And, and I, I spoke to the crowd there and, and I'll never forget. I had come back to North Carolina for homecoming one year. And I went by her office that Friday morning, um, just to see her before I got, you know, in the thick of things, the homecoming festivities. And she had recently re- uh, written me a letter of recommendation for a chief, a chief job, whatever chief job I had just applied for. I had to submit some letters of recommendation. So she had written me one. And at the end of our, our just, you know, conversing and, and just catching up uh, when she knew I was about to go leave and get homecoming weekend started. She told me, she said, listen, she said, your name is now attached to my name because I vouch for you. So, you know, going to homecoming or doing anything that could bring any negative light to you, that's bringing negative light to me also. So you need to be mindful of that, that now, you know, I mean, we are yoked in that way. And so, man, I expect you to carry yourself, you know, with the professionalism of a chief and all of that stuff at all times, because now, you know, man, my name is connected to your name. And so, hey, act accordingly when you, when you walk out of this building. 
and and it's people that have that level of accountability, you know, that will that will hold you, you know, accountable to that space. Like those are the people that you need in your life that are really going to help you get through those things. You don't need the the people that's just going to give you all of the praise and and tell you all the stuff that you want to hear. You know, having somebody that would tell you, "Hey, man, now we are connected because I I, I spoke up for you." So, man, anything that you do can be traced back to me. Man, don't disappoint me. Don't let me down. And and people that you know, I just have. Uh, you know, just so much respect and love for um, for, for what they poured into me over the years. That's been a, a big part of what I try to do today. I try to make sure that I don't let them down, you know, in, in my walking, in my journey um, in, in this profession. You know what? That's actually a really important point. Like, so people don't understand the value. Like I tell people of networking, it's not enough to ask somebody for their business card. It's not enough to to make that connection on LinkedIn or other places. It is when I connect with you, what am I willing to leverage my own personal reputation and agency to make sure that you do well in this space that you're in? And what's so interesting about the advice that Danielle gave you and that uh, Chief Brown gave you as well as this, they both in an essence and what I've told the, the folks that I've mentored along the way is if you are interviewing for a chief's position so that they call you chief, you have already failed yourself in the community. You've already failed, right? Because in reality, you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. The title is not going to allow you entree into the communities that you're interested in getting in. And you have found a way, you know, my brother, my brother, my brother, I need to hire your PR team because I'm just too tired, right? I'm just too tired. First of all, um, you know, I my first chief's job came after I retired after 31 years in Pittsburgh, right, is my first chief's job. And then um, that was at George Washington University, then Charlottesville, Virginia. And now, you know, based on the climate, unless the, the Lord calls me and leads me to another place, I'm not sure what that looks like. One of the things, though, is outreach is your thing. Like, I, I have that outreach is your thing. And you use every aspect of Jason Armstrong to do that. Um, you know, I saw on LinkedIn, you know, you identify um, as indigenous or Native American. You know, for those who don't see you, you know, I may be wrong on this, but I got you about 6'4", 200, and I'm going to give you, let's just say 225, 230. Is that working for you? I, I wish. Uh <laughs> Not so yeah, so why my day my numbers right now is, is six five two fifty. Listen, it's better than the ones Trump be claiming, so we're gonna go with that. So but you bring your most authentic self. Tell me how all the different aspects of being a black male, being a person who is indigenous, a person who is from the South, right? Who is policing, a person who um you walk down the streets, you know, I remember the first time we met in person was in Washington, D.C. at an event um, with the Anti-Defamation League and Fair and Just Prosecutions, who we both do lots of um, interesting um, work and connections with. Tell me how bringing all of those different aspects of who you are. Someone who went to an HBCU, shout out. Um, that was one of our more laughable discussions Uh you know, when Chief Armstrong and I were talking about, you know, he, you know, attended HBCU. My husband's at HBCU and his wife and I, well, not so much, right? They're going to joke us. Um, that's okay. We still keep in our, our ethnic cards. Tell me how bringing every aspect of you allows you to do the work that you do in the community. 
number one thing that I, I hope to accomplish is to break down stereotypes. My, my big motivation when I first got into the profession, uh, when I started in Forest Park, is the, the veteran black officers that we had. Um, they would often talk about, so say, you know, we had a, a supervisor assessment, you know, promotion assessment. And, you know, the list, the final list would come out and, and the blacks on that list normally finished in the bottom, you know, bottom portion of the list. And, and I just, I remember, you know, some of those men and women talking about that and, and feeling as though that they, they would never get a, a, a real shot to, to be promoted or feeling as though, you know, in that agency, you know, a black person didn't stand the chance uh, of getting promoted and me being who I am. And, and my competitive nature, like if you tell me something cannot be done, you know, I'm not going to make a, a big deal out of it. I'm just, I'm going to get to work and I'm going to show you that it can be done. And, 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 you know, that is, that is the chip that I have on my shoulder is there's not anything that I don't think I can accomplish. Uh, now over the years, some people have labeled me as conceited and all this other stuff. All right. I don't look at it that way. I'm driven and I'm driven to be the best and, and I'm driven to be successful and I'm, I'm driven to, to break down, you know, a lot of the stereotypes that, that we often have. And, and so, you know, when people meet me, when I'm not at work, I'm not in uniform and I'm in my regular clothes, I do not scream police chief to you. And I love that about myself. I, I, I would do, yeah, folks, because you got a tattoo or two, don't you? I, I have a half sleeve tattoo on my arm. I got tattoos here, stuff. I wear earrings. I wear jewelry. I would normally have on a fresh pair of J's because that, that is who Jason Armstrong is. That's how I came up. And, and a lot of my, my friends that, you know, I knew from 20 plus years ago, you know, if I see somebody that I hadn't seen in a long time or when they, they see me and I still dress the same way that I dress, they'd be like, Oh man, I'm, I'm surprised you, I'm surprised you still dress like this. I thought you, you could only wear khakis and loafers or something. It's like, no, like, you know, my job title doesn't change, you know, who I am. And, and, and that's, that, that's one of the, the beautiful things, um, you know, about our country and, and the spaces where we have people who, you know, historically, you know, haven't been able to be in these positions or, or it was extremely difficult for them to get to these positions where you fast forward now, man, I can be my authentic self because it's based more on what value do I bring? And so all of the things that you mentioned that people see for me and what I do in a community with any community, this is not the black community. This is not the minority community as a whole. You know, the community that I'm chief in now is predominantly white. doesn't matter, man. Everybody in the community is as equally important to me as, as anybody else. So it doesn't matter what they look like. I just, I understand how valuable that relationship is. And, and to get the, the feedback and, and you get it by being out there and connecting with the people. We had coffee with a cop yesterday here in Apex and I go out there and I run into uh, an elderly gentleman and he comes up to me. He's like, chief, I'm sure you don't remember meeting me, which I, which I don't because I, I meet a lot of people. He says, I'm sure you don't remember meeting me. He said, but one day me and my granddaughter were walking past the police department and you happen to walk out the door and my granddaughter spoke to you. She spoke to you and he said, you came over and spent about five minutes with us just talking to her, interacting with her. And he said, man, that was, you know, that was months and months and months ago. She, he said, man, she talks about that to this day. 
Right. And and it's the little things like that where you understand. And, and those are the things that, you know, I've, been, I've experienced that I've been exposed to. Just, you know, like I said, there's no secret sauce to this. Like, I, I don't do anything special. I, I always take the stance that the most important person to me is the person that is in front of me. Period. Point blank. So I may be running late for the next meeting to get to the next person. Man, that's going to be okay because the person that's in front of me, man, I have to make sure that they feel valued and they don't feel minimized that, man, my time is not, it's not, you know, they're not worth my time. And that's, that's oftentimes like, that's the challenge that we're up against. Now, sometimes, you know, I got to cut people off and, and, you know, I apologize for that, but, but I, I often work from the lens of, from the frame of whoever is in front of me is the most important person in the world at that moment in time. And so what can I do to make their experience with me enjoyable, pleasurable, uh, or what have you? So let's talk about the person in front of you, right? So I'm not talking about me, folks. Um, for those of y'all listening on the podcast, I'm not talking about me. Um, I just saw, and uh, we talked about this briefly just before the recording. I see a picture of you, and it's very reflective. It's a shot that's over your shoulder. Part of, I can see part of the right-hand side, just barely of your face, but immediately in front of you, probably about 15 feet away is you're sitting in an audience in front of President Obama. And you find yourself there because you're part of an inaugural group for 2023, as a matter of fact. Um, basically, these are the rising stars um, for the Obama Foundation. These are these folks, y'all are all under the age of 45, right? Uh, shout out to y'all who are all under the age of 45 because I'm a little bit older, probably old enough to be Jason's mama right now, but still trying to be fly. So um, tell me about that person in front of you experience. How did you find yourself as part of this inaugural cohort uh, with the Obama Foundation and basically rising stars like across the nation of rising stars? Um, and what was that experience like? You spent six months. It was a training program as well, right, on leadership and development. I mean, it was just a full, robust program for six months. Um, and you, are you finishing it up now? Are you just finishing it up? So no, we, we still have uh, a month to go in, in the program. So, but, but yeah, the, the program, you know, when they sent out the original announcement of the program, I just happened, of, of the, the thousands of emails that come through my email, I just happened to see this one. Um, and and I, I read about what the program entailed. And like you said, you know, this is a program just trying to find, you know, the, the up and coming uh, leaders in the country. Um, and when I say leaders, I'm not talking about elected officials or anything like that. Just really community leaders, man. People, people that, you know, drive community work uh, from a community focus um, that's trying to, to make things better uh, in communities. Um, and so when I read through everything um, that they were offering with the program, I just thought it would be a, a good experience. And one thing, one thing that I'm intentional about seeking out is I like being in spaces that are not law enforcement spaces. And and it's not a knock on, on law enforcement. I do a, clearly I do a lot of law enforcement trainings and and with all the associations and things that I, I speak to and speak in front of. But I I've, I've always been I've always been connected to being in learning environment, learning spaces with people that are not in my profession. Because that challenges me more than being around a bunch of law enforcement people, which we we often think very similarly, where I like to be challenged and I like to hear more of what community people are going to say of their outlook on things that helps me understand better. And at the end of the day, helps me show up better for the community that I serve. And so I, I you know, I was pretty confident that there wasn't going to be, 
you know, a whole bunch of police officers or law enforcement people signing up uh, or applying to this program. And so, you know, thousands of people applied to this program and they picked a hundred. And, and after, you know, we got selected, you know, they told us, you know, so we went through an interview, you had to send in a submission and then you go through an interview process, you know, with people from the foundation and everything. And then, so they whittled it down to, you know, working number, but then it, it went to president Obama. And, and so he read through all of our bios and then he gave the final look, yes or no, uh, of whether or not, you know, he wanted us in his program. And, and I was, I was blessed to be one of the, the 100 selected. Now I, I probably, you know, is, is, as dope as my my cohort members are, I probably was number ninety eight, ninety nine, or even maybe one hundred. But it doesn't matter, man. Hey, I, I I made the I made the list. Um, and hey, I, I made I made the cut. And and so you know, in my post, just really reflecting on the impact that I remember when you know Obama was first elected, and and even the people much older than me thinking that that they would never see that happen in their lifetime. Just that impact of a black man being elected president of the United States of America. And and I, I remember how I felt when that happened. And I, you know, I'm I'm not somebody that's all big into politics or anything like that. So it, it had nothing to do with politics for me. Man, it, it all had to do with just really highlighting and showing uh, a young up and comer like me what was possible and despite the eyes and despite how many people said that this would never happen and and just once again like you know who i am as a person you tell me something can't be done all right man i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna show you that it could be done and so me having that mindset and just thinking you know what that mindset had to be like for barack obama to go through everything that he went through to to reach that milestone you know in in his life and what that represented you know, to be sitting right there in front of him, you know, the other day and just listening to him talk, you know, about the journey and just talk about the different challenges and the other things that, you know, he, he had to deal with or things that he deals with now or his outlook on different things. You know, I was just sitting there just taking it all in, uh, you know, man, this kid that grew up in Fayetteville, North Carolina and, and, you know, just the places that I've been and all this other stuff to where, man, I'm sitting in front of, man, Barack Obama, the former president of the United States, like man, people that come from where I come from, man, their story normally doesn't, you know, that's normally not a part uh, of their story. And that that's really where the reflection but for me. And then also reflecting that, you know, it's not enough just to be in the room and anybody can, you know, well, not anybody, but, you know, a lot of people find themselves in rooms and spaces with amazing people, wonderful people and all that other stuff. I was sitting there on the front row and you couldn't tell me that I didn't belong in that room. And that's really what I was trying to highlight from my post is, you know, it's one thing to sit in a room with somebody. It's another thing, man, to have the confidence and and to just have the the tenacity behind you that, man, I belong in this room. And now I'm not saying that I can become the president of the United States, but I'm also saying that I can't become the president of the United States. And, and, and yeah, it, it was, it was just, it was, it was a very, very humbling experience. Uh, and we're going to wrap this up too, but to know, um, I'm literally putting together um, a presentation is I'm not your DEI checklist. I belong in these spaces. I belong here. Right. Um, so I'm going to do something I've never done before. This just happened to me when I was giving a speech um, the other day. And uh, the facilitator caught me off guard, but I, you know what? I kind of like it. So I'm going to do what's called a, a lightning round with you. 
Um, quick, quick, quick response. Um, favorite music artist? Come on now. Uh, dang, man, that's, that's a hard one. Um, Biggie. Biggie. All right, cool. I go with Biggie. I go with Biggie. I go with Biggie. Favorite Starbucks order? I don't drink coffee. Well, all right, but no, uh, um, they have something, cinnamon, apple spice. That's the only thing I, I drink at Starbucks because I don't drink coffee. <laughs> it, I don't drink tea either. So cinnamon, cinnamon, apple spice is a fancy word of saying hot apple juice. <laughs> you know, I ain't going to get mad because for a minute, my husband was hooked on that one too right now. Let's see. Beach or mountains? Beach. Beach. Okay. Got you there. Um, most memorable moment um, in your policing career? I would say to date, most memorable moment. I, I would say the most memorable November 8th, 2017. Two of my officers were, were shot in a lot of duty. Yeah, I, I can. Those are some of those in um, Pittsburgh as well. And then I'm going to finish this. Tell me the thing that you're most proud of. The thing that I'm most proud of is that's a lot. One is is that you know I've I've stayed myself throughout all of this. Um, matter of fact, that's one of my tattoos. Um, it says "Stay Strong," um, and it's not about being strong. It's really about stay stay Armstrong, like stay Armstrong, stay myself. Right. Yeah, don't don't lose that focus on, on on myself. So yeah, that that I would say you know I'm I'm most proud of, and and then also you know not bending. You know, there, there's a lot of, I mean, you know, you, you've said in this seat, you know, there are a lot of things that come your way, whether it's political or, or internal challenges and problems and, and different things. And, and so always, you know, maintaining, um, you know, a high level of integrity, you know, just with myself uh, of the decisions that I make and different things, you know, that I, I you know, I don't try to be popular. Uh, I try to do what's right and, and, and just really, you know, really stick into that throughout, you know, throughout all the challenges and, and things that I've faced, you know, uh, why being a, a chief is, is something that, that I'm proud of. And then lastly, what's next? What's next on Chief Armstrong's bucket list? I mean, you hanging out with Barack, you hanging out with, I saw the picture, you, 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 you buddied up with Westmore. You're, uh, you hate, I mean, you like, you rocking and rolling with some of the superstars of, of superstars um, who are doing some really good things, positive things, um, positive imagery, for black men, not saying that you're leaving your job. I don't want to put that out there. And next thing you know, I got the folks yeah. from Apex showing yeah. up in Charlottesville, yeah. hosting, right? They posting up outside my house and things like that. But though, what's next? What's next for Jason Armstrong? So, I mean, I I, I don't know, uh, man. You know, I sit there in my office and I look at all the work that's in front of me, and so, man, all this work that I got uh, in front of me is 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 what's next for me. You know, I, I don't get caught up a whole lot in in that. Uh, and I and I get asked that question a lot. Even, you know, some of my folks here, you know, ask that question of me. And, and it's hard for me to answer because I've accomplished all of my goals that I set out in this career. Like, you know, the first meeting that I ever had with the chief that hired me back in Forest Park, first meeting we ever had, he asked me, you know, what did I want my career to be or what did I want it to do or something? I told him I want to be the police chief. Like from day one, I knew that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be in charge and I wanted to be the chief. And before I turned 40, I had accomplished that. And so now I'm really, you know, approaching, you know, my career and just approaching life where, you know, everything now was just icing on top of the cake and, and, you know, how, how innovative, you know, can I be and, and what can I do to impact the profession, you know, in a positive way, um, to where, you know, we see, 
you know, better, better relationships with communities, not just here in Apex, but, but all over the country. That's why I speak so much at Noble and at ICP and all of those things, just trying to share things that have worked and things that I know, you know, could work in other places. Not saying that, you know, you, you're going to do exactly what I did, but just trying to help people unlock the potential that is within them and within their organizations, you know, if they took a different approach to to how, um, you know, how they looked at community engagement, how they looked at their officers and their staff and what their contributions to engagement could be. And, and just some of the untapped potential that we have in a lot of police departments. Um, and, and so, you know, continuing to, to do that work um, and, and share, you know, share as much as I can share and, and find myself in spaces where, you know, where I'm challenged is, is something that, you know, I will continue to, to, to seek out and, and, you know, man, who knows, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what's in store. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not looking for a job. Uh, yeah. I want to make sure I'm very clear about that. I'm not looking for a job. I am not seeking a, a chief job anywhere, anything like that. Like none of that is on the table on the radar for Jason Armstrong. So with that, thank you to my guest today, Chief Jason Armstrong, the current chief of Apex, North Carolina, formerly of Ferguson, formerly of Forest Park, but more importantly, got the big NCC behind him. Um, for those of y'all who cannot see it, thank you so much, Chief, for spending a little bit of time with me and allowing me to be in your presence. I truly appreciate it. Thank you. The Black Arm of the Law podcast is hosted by Rashal Brackney-Wheelock. Executive producers Ken Johnson, Steve Tompkins, and Rashal Brackney-Wheelock. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, the Mean Old Line Media app, or where you get your podcast. Follow Black Arm of the Law at BLK Arm of the Law on IG and X. Follow the Mean O-Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O-Line Media. Get the Mean O-Line Media app in the App Store and Google Play for more great podcasts. The Black Arm of the Law Podcast is a Mean O-Line Media production.